Welcome back, Hofgenbon listeners. As promised last week for Podcast 43, we have a special guest today, um, a close friend of ours actually at Kofkin Bond. I'm going to read out the resume as it's fairly substantial and please jump in if I've left anything out. But um, we have Kyle Tyrrell with us today who previously was a Lieutenant Colonel in the Australian Army. He served in the 1st, 2nd, 3rd and 6th Battalions um, of the Royal Australian Regiment as well as the 1st Commando Regiment. Um, he also holds positions right now as the CEO of Vanguard Global Security and Risk which has taken him to... I guess all the Gulf countries uh, worldwide at the moment. So, also the chairman of the board is recent for Carry On, um, as well as being an instructor of Krav Maga. And if I don't, if anyone wants to have a YouTube of this, I reckon it's pretty impressive. But Kyle, well, it's pretty impressive to avoid the. <laughs> to avoid the, it certainly is. But also on the Australian Army, um, four tours. So we've got Kyle in here to talk about leadership today, which I think is fantastic. So Kyle, welcome. Thanks, mate. Thanks, I, thanks for having me. Have I covered everything, or I'm going to be pretty, pretty much, pretty right. much, yeah. yeah. Did you mention? Did you mention he's actually our ambassador? That was where I was just getting to, Tony. Thank you. Sorry. <laughs> but as people would have seen um, with us, he is the ambassador of our Australian Warfighters Wealth Program, um, and it's something we'll maybe touch on a bit today. But today is going to be about leadership and, and the way. That, so look, I will hand it over to you, Tony, to introduce the part of leadership. I have my ways that I'm going to jump in. Um, but this is where you two actually grew up together and that's where the relationship started. So you, you two can kick it off talking about the times in Mooney Ponds and then I'm going to jump in when you keep carrying on a little bit and start talking leadership. Where <laughs> <laughs> do we start, Kyle? <laughs> uh, no, Kyle and I have uh, known each other, been friends for nearly 40 years. Um, probably reconnected through the wonders of social media. Yeah. Um, you know, I don't know about you, but I first went on social media to stalk my children. I'm not too sure about yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so I just find out what they're up to. Yeah. Now I think I have more friends with them and they no longer use Facebook. Yeah. I refuse to answer that question as my son might be listening. Yes. <laughs> so, so, Tom, isn't it? So, yeah, yeah. So, so, yeah. No, but um, no, Kyle and I did grow up together. Uh, so went to St Bernard's College together. Uh, from year seven through, so it was all through secondary school, and yeah, it was it was. I mean, I I actually always enjoyed uh, going to St Bernard's. Never any issues. It was it was great for sport. It was great for friendships. It was great for mates. It was it was rough and tough. It was it was good. It was encouraging. Teachers, you know, questioned some of them. Some of them were great. Uh, you know, so I, I actually quite enjoyed going to St Bernard's. Not too sure about yourself. Yeah, I, I did. I, I think yeah. they had a blessed. Um, upbringing to be yeah. honest you know that time in history was good I think it was a lot simpler than things are today and yeah, um, you know we had a good education we were surrounded by uh, you know some interesting people at times there were some interesting people there <laughs> so it's, uh, no, it, was, uh, it was it was actually really good uh, connecting in actual fact it was uh, talk about that I uh, bumped into quite accidentally to Peter Faley uh, oh, down okay. at South Bank, yes, yeah. I haven't seen Peter for a number of years. We went to primary school together. He was oh, a year above us, of course. But, yep. um, so, yeah, it, it, was, it was interesting times growing up. But I, I've openly said that, uh, especially the Army cadets, uh, I think you were the first person, maybe yourself and Sam Rashu, who were the mm. two first people to be made actual officers in the Army cadets at St Bernard's? Well, I didn't make it to officer oh, didn't in, you? The, in the Army cadets. I made it to company sergeant major. Oh, but, okay uh, then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I rectified that after I left school. So, <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> so, so on, on that reminiscing, yeah. was that... 
we're, we're talking about the army and you guys growing up in sport and that. What was your interest as a child? Was it the army? Like, was it sport? I was always going to join the army. But <laughs> I, I guess was it sport yeah. as well? Like, you talk about sport in that background. Yeah. You know, what were you interested in to as, as children? Yeah, I, I was massive into sport. You know, yeah. I played a, played a lot of football, uh, did a lot of boxing um, as a kid. Uh, boxed with a guy, professional boxer was my trainer, a guy called Paul Ferrari up in Avondale Heights. Had, uh, my dad used to make me run one way to training and he'd drive me the other way. It was 11 kilometres, so I did that six days a week. Um, I think it was my dad's way of instilling a bit of resilience into me, but I loved it. Mm. Um, as far as the Army Cadets goes, it was uh, I really enjoyed it, but when I came to leave school, I really wanted to... To be honest, I wanted to be a carpenter. I wanted to be a builder or a um, landscape gardener. But um, my my mother and my father came from very humble backgrounds, and my father was applying, you know, considerable pressure for me to be a professional person. Um, he was an ex-policeman. The only thing he didn't want me to be was a lawyer, <laughs> and that's that's actually <laughs> I got into law uh, at, uh, at uni. I didn't take that. I ended up getting um, a scholarship to join the army, and I thought that uh, that was a good outcome for me because I wanted to be outdoors and I wanted to be physical, but I also, you know, wanted to satisfy my father in terms of having a profession. Yeah, so that's how I ended up there. Yeah. Yeah. And your father was also very sporting as well. He played football for South Melbourne. Yeah, he was. Yeah, yeah. he uh, played in 1954, 1955 for South Melbourne, number 23, which is now Buddy Franklin's number. Is there in the um, uh, Bobby Skilton era? Uh, yes. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. yeah, that's right. So, uh, so they had a bit of success back then too. Yeah, they did. Yeah, yeah. so it's, uh, yeah, so as I said, we're, we're not going to reminisce. Uh, we do too that right. ourselves anyway. <laughs> about how, how good we were and how much extra hair we had and well, uh, etc. So. Well, let's get let's get on to the topic of leadership, um, and let's keep let's stay with the growing up. But what did you define leadership as a child? When, when you were young, what did you define leadership as? Oh, I don't think I really defined it. I think I basically I was lucky that I was I had a few people in my life that were um, particularly men. I had a few good men in my life. And I, I think I just observed or maybe absorbed their values and the way they conducted themselves, primarily my father. Yep. Um, so he was a very staunch sort of character. He was very clear on what his values were. He was a very good communicator. And, and when he spoke, you kind of listened because he, he didn't speak a lot. So, but when he did, it was valuable. Um, I think he had a real sense of uh, you sacrifice, sacrificing yourself for the bigger cause. You know, he always worked extraordinarily hard and his purpose in life, I think, was his family. But nevertheless, I, I grew up looking at that and, and I guess absorbing that life is about making sacrifices for a bigger purpose and finding that purpose. So, yeah, I, I think that was it. Um, I did... I did a leadership course when I was at school run by um, a guy, a, a teacher there, a guy called Kevin Culliver. Mm. Um, it was specifically, it was an outdoor leadership course and that taught me a lot uh, regarding sort of some formal type, you know, theories about leadership and stuff like that. And um, yeah, and, and, and about sort of taking responsibility for your actions, um, owning it, um, being vulnerable, sort of, uh, you know, owning up to what you don't know yep. um, and I think that was probably the first instance of me um, realising that you know leadership is, is not about you and it's not about the people you follow but it's about getting people to rally around a mission 
So, well, I guess yeah. that that leads us into joining the Australian Army, um, yeah. the Australian Defence Force. Uh, obviously, you've seen a lot of leaders in your day mm. through working there yeah. um, and become one yourself. Who was your first? I guess who was your first leader there, and, and you know who do you look up to the minute you got there? Yeah. Um, well, uh, after I graduated, there were there were quite a number of leaders as I went through um, the Royal Military College, uh, but they were also instructors, so that you yeah. know they weren't leading you in the sense of your boss type thing. When I first graduated, I went to the sixth battalion of the Royal Australian Regiment in Brisbane, and my first uh, officer commanding, so he was a major and I was a lieutenant, uh, was a guy called Mark Yobbo Bornholt, and. Um, I'm assuming uh, Yobbo was the nickname. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I, I, I actually, I called him Sir. But yeah. uh, you know, people of his rank and, and higher called him Yobbo. Um, and he was, uh, he was a really strong influence on me. We're different personalities. Uh, but he was a strong influence on me in that he was unrelenting in, um, in sort of demanding that the standards be kept. Um, and uh, but he also had a side to him that was very much um, he was mentoring and coaching you along the way. So he he had these two sides to them uh, to him, and he played each one out when it was situationally the right thing to play out. Um, what I learned from him was that um, if you worked for him, um, he was staunchly loyal to you. So I could make a mistake. And if anyone else tried to punish me or chastise me about it, he would be like a rabid dog to my defence. Uh, and then behind closed doors, he would tear me apart. Yep. So um, I think that um, that's just a few things about him. I, I learnt that, um, that there is, if you ask people to do something, then you need to be capable of doing it and and willing to do it. So, you know, I remember him <clears throat> uh, at the time, I, I would have been 20, and he probably would have been 35 or 36, and um, he was thrashing himself at physical training with me and the young soldiers, um, and, you know, was unrelenting on himself as well. And that earned him a great deal of respect. Yeah. So. Um, and, and besides that, he was technically brilliant at his job, which doesn't have really anything to do with leadership, other than it did inspire confidence in him. Yeah, Carl, can I ask? Can I ask at that stage? You're 20 years old. Uh, you're the age of my younger son, yeah. and you're going in there, and you are now the officer in charge of people who have been in the army, yeah. uh, maybe for a good period of time. Yeah. So it's three years to start with, I think, for infantry. No, first time, three or four years? Four years. Yeah. Four years. Yeah. So it's um, so you might you might be in charge of a bunch of guys who are now in their mid to late uh, 20s, mm. uh, even, even a bit older. Mm. How do you walk in there and be their leader? Um, <clears throat> well... Uh, Especially, this is your first. Mm. You're 20 years old. Mm. You're baby-faced. This is your first. Uh, everything to you up until this time has been theory. Yeah. So how do, how do you come in and actually start being the leader of a bunch of hardened, yep. tough guys and girls? Yeah. Um, well, what I did was exactly what I still do to this day. If I'm 
um, entering a new leadership position is that um, I, I shut up and I and I observe and um, and Don't I learn. No yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, there's there's got to be a period of time, you know. For for me, just going back to that, yeah. um, it was 32 guys. My sergeant, who was my second in command, so he answered to me. He was 35 years old. He was probably at that stage the toughest man I'd ever laid eyes on. His name was Chuckles Wainwright. Wainwright. Uh, he's called Chuckles because he never laughed. Um, <laughs> he came straight from the reconnaissance platoon. He was, uh, you know, absolute jet at what he did, and and he was my my sergeant. And I had three corporals and three lance corporals, and all of those corporals were, you know, in their late twenties and highly experienced. Um, and so, you know, I think it's it's a realization that yes, I've been trained for quite a period of time. But it's just training mm. and now what I need to do is to occupy my position uh, but I need to be humble about it and I need to recognize that there's I've still got some learning to do um, and so that's what I did is I was I was not jumping in and demanding or you know ordering people around I took a period of time where I just figured things out and gradually sort of uh, stepped up you know my presence as the commander and whilst that might sound like a, you're quite passive, it was well, very well received by the soldiers. You know, the last thing they want is, as you say, a 20-year-old fresh, fresh, uh, baby-faced bloke straight out of training, jumping in and telling them what to do and how to do it. Mm. So they, I think, respected me uh, for the fact that I recognised that I, that I could learn, I needed to learn from them. Um, and in the Australian Army, it's interesting, you know, when, when you, well, at least back then, when you first graduated, everyone called you sir. And um, what you came to realise is that while they were calling you sir, it was a sign that they didn't really trust or respect you. That um, was a formality. As soon as they started to trust and respect you, sir became boss or skipper. So, you know, about three months into it, I remember Chuckles calling me boss for the first time. And um, I remember finishing work and it was better than any Christmas I'd ever had in my life. <laughs> it's like, you know, I got home, he called me boss. It's fantastic, you know. But there's those little informal things where you, you know, you earn it and therefore it means something and it, and it enhances the relationship that you have as a leader. It's interesting you say that if we talk about, um, and one of the things I mentioned to you, and I thought the conversation we are having before the microphone's on was excellent, but mm. it was, um, I've often said, you know, between you and I both as leaders, mm. uh, the difference is that I can tell these guys what to do or put a plan in place and go and execute it, and if it doesn't go through, mm. it's usually a financial you know, we've either lost money or we haven't earned what we believe we would um, earn. In your case, a wrong decision could lead to death. Yeah. Uh, so, so, but I just want to touch on that, but uh, reference it with something you just said. Sometimes in this world that we see, in the corporate world, mm. you see a new CEO or a new leader come into an organisation and the first thing they sometimes seem to want to do is stamp their authority in that first month mm. and go and make all the changes. And, and it seems to end up being a lot of resentment yep. uh, that can occur within organisations. But it seems to be a regular thing that occurs. Mm. So totally, total, total opposite to what you actually just uh, yep. raised then. 
So if we, if we take that as an example, and you do teach leadership to organisations and corporate organisations, mm. and also your thought process and my comments regarding the differences between your, your potential mistakes and my potential mistakes yeah. as a leader. Yeah, well, look, I, I think my comments about occupying a leadership position and having the, the running in time, mm. um, I'll temper that by saying that if there's something blatantly wrong, you need to act. Yeah. You have a duty of care. Um, but if you're going in there with the mindset that I'm making changes to stamp my authority, uh, I'd say that that's a fairly weak leader that needs to do it that way. Mm. Someone who's probably not secure within themselves. See, I, I'm, not a, I'm not a believer that you go to work and you act as a leader and then you go home and you be yourself. I think that good leaders are just themselves wherever they go. And their leadership is really um, an expression of their beliefs and their values. And so <clears throat> if you are not secure in your beliefs or your values, not secure in who you are and your identity, I think you find yourself doing things like attempting to stamp authority. And of course it doesn't work well, and it doesn't work well because it's not authentic. People can smell it, that it's about this guy's just trying to stamp his authority. He's you know, messing us around to prove a point. Yep. Um, and besides that, it's not that smart. It usually ends up in um, a lesser result than if you took your time and you are a bit more considered and thoughtful about it. In terms of the other point that you made, um, your uh, corporate leadership and military leadership, like I was saying to you before, um, I think that the leadership is the same, but I think the consequences are different. So, like you said, if you make an error, the consequences are, you know, financial or maybe career or reputational. Um, if I make a mistake, then it could be, you know, someone losing a leg or an arm or dying. Mm. Or, and not, not even one of my people, it might be a civilian or, might, you know, yep. that sort of thing. So the consequences, I think, are different, but the leadership um, is based on the same principles. Like, for you to get your team to do something, and I think that's what leadership is, you know, there's a million definitions of leadership because there's, you know, each of us are individuals and we each view the world in a different way and leadership is intensely personal. That's why there's so many definitions. But to me, it's something around um, influencing people to do something that they otherwise wouldn't do. So it's something around that. And I think you do that every day, and I was doing it every day in the military. Um, and we're probably relying on the same things. And those things are, at the basis of it, it's trust. Mm. If they don't trust you, they're not going to do what you want. Well, they might do it, but they'll do it begrudgingly, or yeah. they'll just do it. Yeah. Um, and getting people to trust you is about, as I was saying earlier, about these three things identifying or, or understanding that people need three things, uh, including the leader, they, you need it as well. You need to feel like you belong, you need to feel like you contribute, um, and you need to feel that, I forget the third one, what did I say before? Belong, contribute. Contribute and... Um, feel safe. Feels, yeah. All right, so you need to belong, you need to contribute, and you need to feel safe. And so when you look at what you do in a corporate environment, it's not that far from what I was doing in the military. To make people feel safe, 
you create clarity and certainty around their role and their place in the world and where we're going and you know things like that and that comes down to how you communicate and how you interact with people yeah um, if you uh, talk about belonging then you're creating a culture and you're aligning their values with your values so they feel like they belong to something um, you define a purpose so they they have something to strive for and that's why they turn up to work they feel they belong and they want to add to that um, and in terms of contributing um, everyone wants to you, you don't want to spend your whole life uh, you know eight hours a day five days a week doing stuff that doesn't matter yep. so leaders um, uh, the visionary part of it is about explaining how their small part in in playing in the mission is contributing to the mission and I think you do that as well as I was doing it we might execute it in different ways we might mm. use different language and we might use different traditions and things like that but I still think that at the basis of it that's what leadership is no matter where you are yep what concerns me in that Kyle is no one in here calls me boss does <laughs> that <laughs> I mean they don't like me <laughs> so respect yes, me sir. yes sir <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I was going to say, I don't think they call you sir. No, they don't. There's a lot of trouble. <laughs> no, they don't call me that either. When, so, you know, I guess you've been a leader of a lot of people in your life. How do you develop leaders? Have you got a theory around that? Yeah, I do. And um, I think that you, firstly, you need someone who wants to uh, be a leader. Do you um, think some people are leaders and they don't know it? Oh, uh, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think there are people who, uh, you know, I think, you know, in theory, they call them informal leaders. Um, and they're, they're people that don't have a leadership title, and sometimes those people don't know that they're leading, uh, but they are. And you, as their leader, you can use those those people to um, push the team along. You know, that's that's not something that I see a lot of formal leaders with with a title try and squash that out. You know, like you don't hold the position. What the hell are you doing? Well, I, I think you should actually encourage that. Mm. You know, um, leadership isn't um, about your rank and it isn't about your title or your position. It's about achieving the mission. So if someone's driving the team towards the mission, encourage it. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> developing and, a leader, I guess. Say again. And then developing a leader. Yeah, developing leaders. I think is about um, accepting that. Um, you know, like what for my junior commanders when I was in the military, I, I wanted them to fail I, because if they're failing, it means they're trying. Yeah, so what I didn't want was, and, and I had a couple of these uh, guys who would sort of say, Well, um, you know, I, I didn't take action because uh, you know, I didn't, I didn't have orders to, or I, I didn't, um, I didn't have it wasn't in the rule book, sort of thing, so I didn't do it. I, I would rather a guy. Um, or a girl who would give it a crack and get it wrong, even monumentally wrong, um, than someone who didn't exercise initiative at all. Because there's a lot to be um, learnt from failing. And then, you know, as, as their commander or as their leader, it's then about coaching them through it. It's not about, or, you know, or mentoring them through it. It's not about <clears throat> being authoritative, you know, you, you stuff that up, do it again. Yeah, so you believe, I guess, asking them the questions of, you know, why was this decision made and how can we move on from that and, you know... Correct, that, yeah. 
that yeah. type of mentorship in that regard. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So, um, and that, that's exactly how I would do it. Yeah. You know, come and sit down with me, Jamie. Um, what did you do? How did you do it? What was your thinking behind it? What do you think worked? What do you think didn't work? How could we do it better next time? Yeah. yeah and then away. And that, that I would call an after-action review or a hot wash. Yeah. You know, and that yep. guy goes away. I make sure he, you know, he repeats back to me what he learnt, um, and away he goes. If he keeps making the same mistake, then we've got a problem. Yeah. You know. Do you do you use that type of leadership as well to encourage them to make decisions? I guess whilst this is, I guess let's say the muck up hasn't happened, they're, they're going to that, that decision. They're going, yeah. no, nah, we can't do it. Let's just use our business sense. You know, oh, we're moving to this property. Oh, we can't move in by that date. Or why can't we? Oh, because of this reason, you know, we can't transport everything by there. Okay, well, have you tried another transport company? Are these the type of questions that you sort of lead people with? Uh, yeah, uh, I would. If it was that sort of conversation, I would. If I had the time and it was worthwhile, I wouldn't be so leading. So, you know, instead of saying, "Could we? Did we try another lead, um, yeah. transport company?" Yeah, you know, probably did, a terrible yeah. example from yeah. us. But yeah. is there another course of action here that you can think of? Yeah, oh, yeah, there is. We could try another transport company. Okay, well, yeah. Is there any other way? What if that doesn't work? Is there another way we could do it? Yeah, and mm. just keep pushing them to think. Um, but in the military, and this is what I transfer to. Um, quite a few of the civilian organisations that I work with, we have a system to communicate and it's a really good system. And um, it seems very formal, but you can do it informally, um, you know, as you're sort of walking through the corridor with someone that you're leading. And the system is that I give you a mission and it's not a mission as in, um, as in a, a company's mission. It's, a, it's like a task where maybe I would say to you, Jamie, um, mate, can you, um, can you research the uptake of electric vehicles in Australia over the last two years? All right, so, so that's one way I could ask. But a better way to ask is to use the who, what, when, where and why. So I give, that's a mission, who, what, when, where and why. And the important thing, you may not do the when and the where, or you might do the when, but not the not the where. But um, you cover those things off, and the important thing is the why, because you've just I've just given you the purpose behind my request. Yeah. Now the thing I haven't told you is how to do it. So I now expect you to go away and think about how am I going to do this, and then before you do it, you come back and you just brief me in. Hey boss, um, I was thinking what I do is um, you know what, what you asked me to do. I check out these stats and those stats. But because I told you why, you might also say, but you know, I was thinking about why you want this and we might also be worthwhile researching um, electric vehicle charging stations and where they are and how fast they're going in. And as the leader, I might go, yeah, you're right. That is important and that is really useful to me. And then that's my opportunity. So you've back briefed me. I'm happy with how you're going to do it. That's my opportunity to say to you, Jamie, is there any other way that I can help you? Do you need any more resources or more time? Are you, you know, how can I, how can I help you? And you sort of no, 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 I'm all good. Okay, and away you go. And then my job from then on is just to check in. So I hover, maybe once or twice a day, and that's as easy as saying, Jamie, how are you going with that? Any problems? Any issues? Any barriers? Anything that's getting in your way? Any way I can help you? And you just give me a little rundown, and away we go. And that's, to me, a great style of leadership. We call it mission command leadership in the Army. 
But the important thing, the, the important ones there are that I tell you why, yep. Yep. and you understand it, and I don't tell you how. That's your, your chance to grow and to learn and use your initiative. It's interesting you raised that. I know from a sporting uh, coaching, in a sporting uh, scenario, um, the best coaches I've had weren't the ones who just told me, do this, they're the ones who told me what to do and the reason why they're getting me to do it. Yep. So it's understanding that why, because you know if I'm if I'm trying to compete and swim uh, in a hundred meter freestyle race, mm. uh, why have you got me doing ten one hundred freestyles, fifteen seconds slower per one? You know, so yeah. in other words, it, it's understanding the why behind yeah. it is the most important part to get the best result yeah. out of what you're actually doing. You're right, and and that goes back to what I said before. It yeah. it, it correlates with people want to know they're contributing, they want to know they're belonging and they want safety. So knowing why they're doing something touches on all of those things. Yeah. You know? If I know why I'm doing it, then I can work out how I'm contributing. If I know why I'm doing something, I feel a lot safer in terms of you know, doing the right thing than if I'm just given a narrow, shallow sort of task. Um, so yeah, I mean, it and it goes to all of those things, and I think that's why it's powerful, is because it's connected to how people are motivated. Yeah. Mm. Yeah. With the um, when it comes to transitioning, so you were you know lieutenant colonel, which is three short of so what are you lieutenant colonel, colonel general? Is that right? No, lieutenant colonel, and then you've got uh, colonel, brigadier. Okay. Major General, Lieutenant General. Okay, so it's um, how do you transition from that world where I mean, from you as a leader, you just weren't in control, army control, telling other people what to do. I yeah. know you were actually out there kicking indoors as well. Yeah. Uh, so you were actually out there on the missions also. Yeah. Uh, so you're leading your men in combat. Yeah. Uh, from from that perspective, had and I also know you're also I think in your final tour in charge of logistics or worked in logistics as well. I had um, yeah, I had a year when I was the commander of the logistics for the airborne battalion. Yep. Yeah. So how do you transition from that where everything is structured mm. uh, and there are there are areas where you report to and commands, etc., mm. um, to being leadership in, you know, the, what what we call the non-army world? Um, I think the leadership... Sorry, I'll, I'll just yeah. preference yeah. where I'm coming with that question. Mm. A friend of mine got a very senior role at ANZ decade or so ago mm. and she was quite horrified within the first week of being there where somebody asked her a question she goes oh no I, I get um or I iron all my shirts on a Sunday night for the week you know have five of them ready to go and this guy turned around to her and said well you're optimistic you're gonna have your job on Tuesday aren't you and just that culture of fear yeah. about, you know, whether you're going to keep a job. I was quite surprised. Um, now, that was very senior management at ANZ. We're not talking middle. We're mm. talking uh, senior. So I was quite surprised by that. You know, so how do you, how do you transition from the structure that you do have in the Defence Force yeah. uh, to that private and in respect to coaching those senior people in respect to being leaders of people as well? Yeah, it, it's not easy. The transition isn't easy because yeah. it's an extraordinarily strong perp sense of purpose that you have when you're in the military. Getting yeah. out of bed in the morning was never, ever a problem for me Yeah, because I knew exactly why I was going to work and it was very powerful. Mm. Um, 
that sense of purpose is not always in, and, and everyone around me also knew that. The yeah. other thing in the military is that there's nowhere to hide really. I mean, yeah. they know what rank you are, they know what your name is, they all know your background and they know how much you earn. Yeah. So there's not much left yeah. there, you know. Yeah. Um, so now it comes down to how you perform. Can this guy do his job? So um, you come to the corporate world and everything is much less clear. And uh, what you find is in the military, by and large, I say to people there's, you have three priorities when you come to work. And those priorities are yourself, your people, and the mission. In the military, it's very, very clear that the number one priority is the mission. Number two is your people, and number three is you. Mm. Um, there is a whole lexicon around people who put themselves first. And I won't say the words that are used, but they're a greater insult than if I insulted your mother. Yeah. You know? So the worst thing that you can be um, tainted as in the military is someone who puts themselves first. Then when you come out into the corporate world, you, you're confronted with a much more flexible um, scenario when it comes to those priorities. And you see a lot of people put themselves first. And that what you just explained about the ANZ culture then, um, and I'm not... I don't know the ANZ culture, just from what yeah. you said. I'd say that that's... I don't know if it was a culture across the board, but it was just a, com com a, com a conversation which horrified somebody who was yeah. brilliant at her role. Well, that person yeah. was clearly someone who put themselves first because they were talking about their job and, you yeah. know, and things like that. Um, people who put their followers first are generally on a hiding to nothing because... Um, they they end up doing all the all the mistakes that popularists make, you know. Um, people who put the mission first generally create success for everyone who's involved. You know, they make hard decisions, they make sacrifices, they they might deal out some tough love, but at the end of the day, everyone in the team will win yep. if the mission is achieved. Yep. And so for me. Um, that's what that I. Remember that ten-year plan, Jamie. <laughs> <laughs> so, so for me, when I go into a corporate environment, I try and keep things very, very simple like that. And uh, that model there, um, mission, people, me. Uh, that's a, a little checklist, really. Yeah. You know, the decision that was just made is that made in the best interests of who? What was the priority that was just put forward then? Okay. This person who's speaking to me now, where are they coming from? Mission first or themselves first or their people? Yeah. So um, so that's how, how I tackle it. But it's it's much more, you know, leadership in, in the corporate world is much more difficult, really, than in the military. In the military, everyone's on board, you know, and there's nowhere to hide. Yeah. Um, and you can't all of a sudden get, you know, a colonel that, has never been in the army before yeah. come into your industry over yeah. the top of you yeah we, we grow them all yeah you know? so it's much more difficult in the corporate world and i think it's very complex and that's why my approach with corporates is to keep things nice and simple yeah like that. Yep. yeah okay mm -hmm. and how, how do you find uh the reception from some of those leaders in the corporate world yeah of having you know somebody who is obviously because you're in the army anyway, but just by nature means you are a disciplined person. Yep. You do understand uh, mission, you do understand complexity, you do understand 
strategy. Yep. You, you, you just don't say, well, listen, that town looks good. Why don't we just go and have a wander through that and see what's going on? Yep. Uh, you know, there's a strategy and a reason for actually doing that and going through that town. So yep. how, how do you find that difference in respect to that corporate world? Like you can have a mission statement mm. and some people wouldn't even have a clue that you had a mission statement. No, that's and right. I know that's very 80s and 90s, but yep. you, you know where I'm getting at. Yeah. yeah. And look, at you know, uh, when I talk about mission, I'm not necessarily talking about corporate mission statements, but yes, I'm talking no, about yeah. how you... Yeah, how you drive people to execute every day. But, um, yeah, uh, what do I find? I find that if someone has called me in to help, then they're, they're usually great because they've identified that, that they can be better and the organisation can, be, um, can be better. Yeah. It's, it's the people generally who really, really desperately need some help in the area of leadership are also the people who think they don't. Yes. You know? yeah. So, which is uh, which is really interesting, but um, it's a it's a much more complex um, environment, like I said before, um, and civilian or corporate leaders have a lot more. They also have more stakeholders that they need to you know compromise with. Uh, generally speaking, particularly if you've got shareholders or members or stuff, if I'm working with boards, you know. Yeah. Um, so it, it's about mapping it out. And it's also about, like I said before, j- just bringing it down to what what we can achieve now, you know. So if it's really complex, in the military, we, we obviously deal with very, very complex situations, you know, fighting in, in Baghdad. Uh, um, with everything that's going on there, different tribes, different you know um, militias, um, different coalition partners, politics, you know, uh, different tribes, you know, all of that sort of stuff going, geopolitics going on, extraordinary, com- yeah. extraordinarily complex. Um, and what we do to get through it is we just chunk it down. So we just look at it and we go, okay, which bit can we affect? Let's just affect that bit. And yep. see what happens. You yep. know, so if it's complex, then chunk it down. Um, and that's you know, with with leaders who ask me to assist them, I usually pick two things. So we do we do an interview, we establish a baseline, and then that leader will choose the two things after a discussion that we really want to work on, and then we make some progress in those areas. And what inevitably happens because nothing ever sits it by itself; everything is connected. Making progress in those two areas affects, you know, multitudes of other areas, including outside of work, at mm. home and, you know, in their personal life. Yeah. Mm. What's, we're not, not talking a scenario here, but what's some times in your leadership that you felt you've failed and that you've learned from that failure? Oh, how long have we been? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I guess some just, some just key moments, just, you know, something that you thought, you know, as a leader, you thought it was right at the time mm. and then you sort of reflect and said, look, you know, this is something I need to learn from. Mm. Bit of a hard one. Yeah. Um, Ones that you can answer, of course. Yeah, and, that, and I guess that's uh, what I'm that's, going yeah, through. Yeah, is, that's, uh, there, there's that's one why I was trying to say yeah. non-situational. There, there's, yeah. there's one that really you know immediately springs to mind, but um, anyone uh, who served with me then will know exactly what I'm talking about, and I'd, I'd prefer not to, yeah. to go there because it involves um, someone else. But, um, look, I, I think there were, you know, probably... For, for me, it was about most of most of the time. The thing that I struggled the most with was achieving the balance between being a boss and a friend. Hmm. You know, because it, it's difficult. If you're 
you're facing dangers with people, you're you know, going through extreme hardship with them, physical hardship, mental hardship, you're spending long, you know, months and months and months together. Um, it's difficult to maintain a boundary sometimes. So um, constantly being aware of that was something that um, I think, you know, not just me, but a lot of people um, would struggle with or did struggle with. Yeah. Um, and at times I know that, you know, I sort of probably disappointed myself in that, you know, um, I allowed, uh, probably made an easy decision when I should have actually made a hard decision based on my rapport with a person or my, how close I'd become to a person. Um, and I, I, you know, look, I used to say... So like just not pulling them up quick enough or just letting something slip through? Yeah, just letting... Wouldn't necessarily things, yeah. let slip through someone else? Yeah, exactly, yeah. 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 And, you know, it, it's... Um, I think it's human nature, but it's, it's difficult. I used to very much look at my soldiers as my role was being like a boss, a brother and a father, all rolled into one. Mm. Um, because you, you know, like you were mentioning before, I've got their lives in my hands. My decisions, I need to make, I, I'm, I'm not only affecting them, but I'm affecting their families and their kids and their future careers and all sorts of things, you know, whether they live or they die. So um, I took it very, very seriously. And it's some, sometimes, you know, I think you, you don't get the balance right, mm. you know, where you become, you become a mate instead of a boss or you're, you know, you're a bit, you're fatherly when it should have just been tough love from the boss sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, so it's, um, no, but I think that can happen everywhere, you know, so it's, um, but I think, I think too, there, as you said, there's a difference between being friendly and approachable and being a friend. Mm. if that makes sense yeah. so it's uh, in business in general yeah and especially as per you know your when decisions are made uh, you know as you said it's what we were spoken speaking about this earlier on but you know it's um what you walk past is what you're prepared to accept is that how the quote goes or yeah i think so, yeah, the standard you walk past, walk past is a standard, standard you accept, you accept. Mm. and sometimes you turn a blind eye to what you walk past mm. uh because there you mate. but as i said if it was mm. someone else you'd actually be saying not a hope yeah yeah, yeah, yeah exactly right. or pull and them up the first time yeah and yeah. I, look i think early on in my career i i was probably <clears throat> I probably had, I didn't know who I was, you know, I was a young man. Yeah. And so I was working all of that out. So you have a picture of what you should be. And so that's how I was turning up. Yes. Know, I was the tough, you know, infantry commander. When at certain times what I actually needed to be was a bit more compassionate. Yeah. And a little bit more understanding. You know, if someone, someone else wasn't living up to what I thought the... Uh, expectation was. Yeah, the, or, the, or the the stereotype, then I would, you know, sort of smash them about it. Yeah. But then looking back on it, particularly after I went to war, um, I realised really quickly that having a really diverse array of personalities is a really good thing. Yeah. yeah. Know, having that really quiet guy who's, you know, in my case I had a, a couple of snipers on my second trip to <clears throat> uh, to Iraq, and one of them was a really quiet guy. And I used to bring him into the uh, combat team planning. And a lot of the you know the senior NCOs and the officers would look at me and say, why is he in here? Yeah. And I was like, oh, he might have something good to say. You know? Yeah. And um, I think, you know, after all of those months, there's probably two things that he said in, in those 
um, planning meetings for were planning missions, and I'm really glad he said them mm. because they made a huge difference. Yeah, you know. But earlier in my career, I would have looked at him and thought, you know, he's really quiet and you know plays computer games and stuff. Even though he's a sniper. Yeah. Um, and he wouldn't have fit the stereotype that I had in my yeah. mind. Yeah. Do you think vulnerability has become another big part of leadership? I feel like I personally feel like this is a word that keeps getting thrown out lately. Yeah. It feels yeah. like it's you know people are starting yeah. to understand that is a part of leadership. Yeah. Look, another way to say it is just honesty really yeah yeah you know um, being vulnerable is is having the courage to uh, be honest and open up yeah so you know I, I think um, anyone who was ever under my command uh, particularly you know from you know probably about the rank of captain onwards would uh, recognize me as a person uh, as a commander who would stand up at times and say well man I don't know how to do this Anyone got any ideas? Yeah. And, you know, that's that's a sign of recognising that you're now putting the mission first. It doesn't matter that... You, if I was putting myself first, I'd try and bluff my way first through it. Yeah. Because I worried about my ego. Yeah. But because I was worried about more about getting the mission right, I didn't care how I looked. Yeah. Or how, you know, who took the credit. Yes. I wanted to get the right answer. Yeah. So um, that is vulnerability. But I think vulnerability is just a nice way of saying that you have the courage to be honest with people. And you know what? I think that you gain a lot more respect and trust from uh, people because everyone knows, it, just about everyone's got you know, a BS detector. Yeah. And everyone knows that you don't have all the answers. We know that. Yeah. Like you know your boss doesn't have all the answers. And so when he doesn't, it's just good that he says, I'm not quite sure how to do this, let's work it out. Yeah. It's yep. a much better way of doing it. Yep. And you get a lot more respect for it. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. It's, it's you know, the, the idea of, um, like, talking about Brene Brown there, who I think worked with your ex-football coach uh, for a while. But, um, you know, her stuff is actually very, really good. Mm. Uh, but regarding uh, leadership, vulnerability, and the ability, as you said, to be able to say, you know, I don't know. Yeah, uh, I, I didn't pick up that you were talking about Brene Brown then. But oh, uh, she, talk, oh, uh, mine comes down to uh, she worked closely with Richmond, and okay. mine's that's just a sporting team I love. But yeah, right. they've mm. talked big, and, and they've written there's a book that's written about their year and things like that. And yeah. they say a big part of their success was that they broke down barriers that we were talking before that you know I had a view of what it was meant to look like. Yeah, and I'm guessing a lot of people, especially in I guess male sports, is yeah mm. I've got to be a manly man when I'm playing this sport. Yeah, and it's not. You know, you're not all going to be the same. You've all got different interests. One bloke might be into computer games while the other bloke loves his sport. Yeah. And in many respects, if you're a part of a team, it doesn't really matter what you think you should be. No. Because you're not important. Yeah. What's important is the team achieving its mission. Yeah. yeah. But yeah, I, I didn't pick up that it was a Brene Brown. But she talks um, she talks about courage. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. So, yeah. Um, you know, it sort of coincides with what I just, what I just said is that the thing about vulnerability is, um, you know, about... Uh, it's there's a a stereotype of, of we're talking about men. There's a stereotype of manhood, you know, um, and uh, it's actually I think a sign of weakness that stereotype because you, you you're too gutless to be yourself. Yeah. Yeah. You know, the the, the courage to be yourself um, and the courage to stand in front of people that are looking up to you and take the risk of saying, I'm not sure what to do here, yeah. is far more courageous than trying to fluff your way through it, particularly yeah. if lives are on the line. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's, you know, even from, once again, to go back to that sporting side, you've got, um, for example, 
you know, football clubs nowadays, whereas you know, there used to just be, even VFL back in our days, mm-hmm. uh, there used to be one coach, the head coach, yeah. mm-hmm. and what he said was, was what happened. Uh, there might have been someone there to help them with nutrition, you know, try not to eat a meat pie before uh, before a game. <laughs> only, or, only three darts before the game. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But, um, you know, nowadays there are several coaches. You know, yeah. you have, um, you know, Essendon thankfully poached a really good one from Richmond just recently, mm. uh, Blake Carousella, very happy with that, uh, going back to his, where he should be in the first place. Um, but th- there seems to be that ability where the head coach no longer has that ego where it's all about him. He understands that having a forward coach, you know, in, in every area. So, and I think in some ways that has actually come from the military. Uh, yeah, it, it probably, well, it may have because it's definitely how the military works. Yeah. Um, so we, we, I mentioned the term combat team before. So we, we form teams based on what the mission is, not, you know. So when I went to Iraq the second time, I took... Um, a combat team that had nine different um, specialisations or corps from nine different parts of the of uh, the country. Yeah. Nine different bases. Pulled them all together. Had you know six or seven weeks uh, to formulate them as a team, and then off we go. Now, before uh, I did that, I was commanding uh, 150 paratroopers, and I only took 46 of them with me okay so in the in the old days it would be you know major Tyrrell um, at that stage deployed with his company the whole 150 of them okay you know? but that's not that's not how we do business anymore and that that thing about a head coach and then a number of specialist coaches we've been doing that in the military for quite a while so you'll have you know the commander and then you'll have his specialist advisors mm. you know so as as a combat team commander um, I could employ, you know, fast jets to drop bombs and tanks to come and do a quick reaction force and um, American Apache helicopters flying over the top and um, I had uh, I had armoured vehicles, I had a, a troop of armoured vehicles and, and I, I don't know how to do any of that stuff. Yeah. Like, I don't know how to fly a jet, I don't know, I had artillery, I don't know how to fire artillery. Yeah. What I do know how to do is be like at the conductor of an orchestra. I know how to synchronise all of the effects onto the ground, yep. and I do that through the specialist commanders that command each of those areas. Yep. So if I want the jets, I talk to the guy, the jet guy. Yeah. You know, get me this. <laughs> this is what yeah, I want. Yeah, I've got want. a jet guy. <laughs> <laughs> you know, get this. Yep. This is what I want. This is where I want it. This is why I want it. Yeah. And you make that happen, and then synchronise it with all of the other effects. And you know they do that in football now, and I think in business. That's something where you know, a lot of people can learn from that, yeah. that you're responsible um, or you're accountable for the outcome, but you're not necessarily responsible for everything that gets you to the outcome. Yeah. You, know, you need to delegate uh, to the people that you need to delegate. Yep. Can, I'll give you two scenarios, a, um, a war scenario, and, and this is obviously a question without notice, um, but I have no issues with the answers that I'm sure you'll give. Um, but one's a war scenario, and the second one is a business scenario. And the war scenario mm-hmm. comes from, on the weekend, I went and saw the movie 1917. Mm-hmm. And it was a brilliant movie to the point where it was just, I was... You know, Boyana was there going, oh my God, I, I was there just, it was it was just so intense mm-hmm. uh, the way it was done and it did not glorify war in any way whatsoever. Mm-hmm. 
But what it actually did was it, it showed in a lot of ways, and we're talking obviously between, well, in this case, 1917, but between 1914 and 1918, um, and previously to that too, where you have the commander up in the hill mm. just saying, okay, um, happy to sacrifice these 400 men running across no man's land now. Mm. You know, so with, with no thought consequence to that being somebody's son, brother, you know, etc. And there just seemed to be this, okay, we know, and we know all the stories of Gallipoli and things like that. We know we're going to lose this amount of men to try and achieve our objective. Mm. In the corporate world in the 80s, it was a case of buy, dismantle, retrench, get rid of, you know, downsize. Mm. Uh, whereas nowadays in the army, it's, you know, we don't want to lose a man That's right. in our mission. Uh, and in business, it's a case of, well, you know, in my, my attitude in here, if that, if there's no money, I don't get paid. Mm. Everyone else still does. You yeah. know, so it's, it's, it's not a case of sac- sacrificing somebody else for your own individual glory. Yeah. How, how do you see in, in the military, and then if you want to give, you know, think about the business side as well, what's been the big change what has been that big change of we can sacrifice anyone we want uh to you know we do not want to lose a man or Um, person all the military scholars listening to this will probably um provide bad comments on the podcast for this but (laughs) my my view is the thing that really changed it was tanks believe it or not okay so up until the ability to maneuver um, it was attrition warfare. So there's a front line, you get up and you walk towards the other front line or run, and you know, the ones that took a metre today were the winners. And um, I saw medieval battles as just gang fights with weapons. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> just everyone just going. Well, it's just attrition. It was the, yeah. you know, the, one, the, the ones left with the most people at the end won. Yeah. So um, I think warfare and thinking um, uh, developed uh, yeah. with. Uh, tanks and with communications so you know now um, instead of sending soldiers over the top I could get t- tanks to maneuver quickly around to a flank you know yep. and so and and there became a uh, a change from you know who had the most people left to who held the most critical ground yeah so or the vital ground so I think that they, they were the changes I think also that Post, you know, World War One, people, you know, no one won. Yeah. No one really won. Yeah. You know, there were yeah. generations that were wiped out. So, um, and that affected economies and affected affected cultures. And it, people came up with there must be a better way to do it. And so we went down a whole range of different, you know, manoeuvre warfare, asymmetric warfare, you know, and it really business is about asymmetry. It's about trying to achieve the effect you want um, with the least amount of cost. Yep. You know, so if I can bring a country to its knees without deploying one troop, why wouldn't I do it that way? Yeah. You know, why wouldn't I do cyber attacks and attack its critical infrastructure and not even deploy one troop? Yeah. You know, yep. Why would I not do that? You can see it in terms of air warfare. You know, we're doing um, pilotless drones and things like that now. So we're not risking humans anymore. Yes. Yep. Um, there's a cost. You know, they talk about blood and treasure. Mm. Um, when you when you sacrifice blood, um, that you know generations, it also has an economic effect. So, and I think we've come to grips with that. There's lot. There's a lot more different ways to wage warfare now too. 
Yeah. You know, you can do it very quickly and you can pivot and stuff like that. So yeah. I think that that's what's changed. And a lot of those lessons, a lot of those principles about how to wage war, they directly um, translate into business for, yes. for people who are willing to sit down and, and grapple with those theories. Yep. Mm. Okay. No, that's, that's great. Yeah, do you um, have any other questions? No, I'm good. I think it's been a very insightful podcast. Kyle, I am thrilled to have you here. You uh, have been a friend for a very long time, and I've always preferred having you as a friend than an enemy. So it's always been far better for my welfare <laughs> as a result. So it's, um, but I want to sincerely thank you for coming in, not just doing this today. I want to sincerely thank you for the work that you actually do for the veteran community. I'm not a veteran, never have been, uh, neither have anyone in my family, but I know the work that you do, the work you give back, um, the fact that you know you you make people reach out to you who, and there's a big issue with you know uh, veterans and suicide and things mm. like that, and and what you've done with charities uh, to be able to help these veterans assimilate back in. To society and you know not go through or be able to go through in a way that isn't bad is, is just exceptional so it's not just the work that you do your paid job uh, or paid jobs in respect you do but the work you actually do to give back to these people who I, I saw your LinkedIn thing today where I made a comment on it and the amount of people that wrote back to you and saying well done boss <laughs> yeah and that's something that you do uh, that's your charitable heart and the fact that you do care and I, I think that is the reason why you uh, were such a great leader and you are now teaching other people to be great leaders yourself as well. So well, thank you. Cheers, mate. And thanks thanks to um, Kofkin Bond and Co for having me on. It's been a real pleasure. You guys are a breath of fresh air when it comes to, you know, the corporate environment. So <laughs> yeah, I love it. It's been a blast. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Kyle. Thank you.